I feel like Wurzel Gummidge today, do you remember him? Yeah. Put on my preaching head. Swap heads. I did enjoy our cheerleaders at the back. Where's it gone? Janet, she, she, she should have seen them. Janet and Sarah, they're giving it all at the back. You see them big pom-poms next to you. It was amazing, it was brilliant. That'd be great, go for it. Well, once again, we're looking through, now come to the end of Peter's first letter to the dispersed believers across what we now know as Turkey. Look at where to put all my books. So we come to the last chapter, chapter 5 of the first letter from Peter. One thing to note, it's always worth remembering this, our English translations obviously are different, it's a different language, but are actually different in many other ways to the original text. The original Greek, little or no punctuation in it, all carried on in one long sentence, but also the chapters and the verses have been inserted since by the scholars as they translated to make it easier for us to find our place, to know what we're looking for, to remember that I know that verse I'm looking for, I can't remember what chapter it's in, but I know it's in the bottom right-hand corner of my Bible, things like that. It makes life easier. But we do have to remember that as they inserted these breaks, these chapters and these verse numbers, as they inserted headings as well to make life easier for us, sometimes they can misdirect us. Okay? They're there for good reason, I'm not decrying, I think they're brilliant. We do have to be very careful. Sometimes, as you read through the Gospels, you can be reading through a story and then there's a break and a chapter heading, a kind of a section heading and it carries on and actually you realise it's the same story and it's kind of punctuated a bit. And sometimes you can take that as a separate section and miss out on the context of what's been before and where it's going after. Sometimes the danger of looking at breaks and taking a section, for example, if you're looking at in your Bibles in 1 Peter 5, certainly in the NIV, it goes from all the way from verses 1 up to verse 11 and then stops and then does another bit about final greetings, doesn't it? It's there for good reason. But in other, other sections, other parts of the Bible, sometimes that can mislead us because we take that as a standalone section and we can lose sense of the context. Sometimes with the headings, for example here it says in the NIV, it says to elders and young men. In the ESV it says to shepherd the flock of God. Yes, that section is about that. But sometimes we can allow that to, we can, we can focus on that as a theme of what that section is all about and actually miss out the fact that it's talking about something else as well. So they're there for good reason, don't get me wrong. But here is a prime example this morning. This section is headed to elders and young men, or depending on what version you're reading, shepherd the flock of God. Yes, it is about that. This morning we are going to look at eldership. We are going to look at the flock, aka the rest of us. But remember the context. We need to remember where we've been so far in this letter. We need to understand what he's talking about and where he's been coming from so far. But we also need to understand that there is far more going on in this section, this chapter, than just being about elders and the flock. There's a far deeper truth in here that Peter has almost slyly kind of just thrown in there to see if we'll notice it a little bit. But it it underpins the whole letter, let alone the chapter, and in fact the whole book of God, the whole word of God. So that's what we're going to be looking at later on. We're going to look at the gospel itself as well. um, In the NIV, unfortunately it loses a little bit the context. In the First verse, we will read it in just a second, it goes straight into two of the elders among you. And unfortunately it loses a bit of the sense of context straight away because in the ESV the word so is inserted so we can understand a bit more of the tone of the original text. So, remembering where we've just been, I'm now talking to the elders. And in the New American Standard it says therefore. That's missing from the NIV but again, remember this is all about context and where we've already been which we will be remembering later on as well. 
So let's read chapter 5 with all that in mind. And we'll pray and then we'll dig deeper. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Lord, we just want to lift this passage to you and just ask that you'll speak to us through this, that you'll use me and help me to say what is on your heart for us here this morning. But Lord Jesus, just help me to pass it on, help all of us to listen to you, Lord Jesus. Notice, first of all, here we go, the first verse. Immediately, Peter validates his ability to speak to the elders before he even carries on talking to them. He reminds them of who, who he is. In the first verse, he says, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. He was an elder himself in Jerusalem. When it was time for him to move on, he handed over to James and the body of other elders. So no one can straight away say, yeah, but you don't know what it's like to be an elder. You're an apostle. You oversee us, but you've never actually done the job, have you? He had done the job before he moved on to whatever God had prepared for him afterwards. He knows what it's like. But then what's his main concern? His main concern is that all elders or pastors, all these terms are interchangeable. When we talk about elder, we're talking about pastors. We're talking about overseers is another word that's used in the Bible. We're talking about shepherds when that's used in the Bible. These are the leaders of the flock, the leaders of the local church. When he's talking to the elders, he's asking that they follow their responsibilities, they serve out their role within the church with the right heart and with the right character. If you look at the, there's some lists in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in the first chapter of Titus, there's a list of qualities rather than qualifications necessarily for eldership, for men in eldership. And pretty much all of that is all about character. It's not all about role in life, status in life. It's not about giftings. It's not like what kind of CV they should have. It's about where their heart is, ultimately. That's what he's speaking into. And again, Peter himself carries on into this. He goes in to say, verse 2, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. He doesn't want them to do it unwillingly or under compulsion. He wants them to do it willingly. It's about the heart, isn't it? He doesn't want them to be doing it in such a way that they're greedy for money, that they want to be earning more and get more of a responsibility in the church so they can ask for more wages, etc. But they were just doing it eagerly because they want to, because their heart's in the right place. He, doesn't, he asks them not to be lording it or domineering in their, in, their, uh, in their leadership, but to be examples. You remember Christ. When we were looking at chapter 2 a few weeks ago, it was about Christ was our example, our humble example, and how we should be relating to the rest of the world. And the same here, it applies to the church. Willing, eager examples. If our leaders can't express Christ's humility, if they can't follow his example in humility, then how can the rest of us be expected to follow them? Ultimately, they need to be leading by example for us to then follow and learn from. But then why does he use this term shepherd? What's that all about? Well, shepherd is a picture that's been used throughout the Old Testament, carries on into the New Testament. God speaks to the people in Ezekiel, talks to them about they haven't been shepherding the flock particularly well, so to speak. But um, Jesus continues, continues the theme. In John chapter 10, I think, it, John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And Peter then continues here, he talks about him as the chief shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It culminates in everything. Because Micah, the prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus, prophesied in, and I've lost it now, chapter 5, verse 4 of the book of Micah, he says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled that. He turned up and he shepherded. He said, I am the good shepherd. So ultimately, following his example as the chief shepherd, the leaders of the church should follow in the same example as shepherds of the flock. Let's look a little bit more into what that word actually means. The Greek word, the initial word for uh, shepherd is poiomeno. I've no idea if I've just pronounced that right, and frankly, I don't really care. But that's the word, poiomeno. What it means is it's not just about herding the flock, gathering them up, rounding them up. It's not just about feeding them, making sure they've got enough meal for every day. It's about the whole attention of the shepherd's oversight. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and also to the flock. Pay careful attention to. Don't just administrate them. Don't just tell them what to do on Sundays. Pay careful attention to the flock. It's complete shepherding. Our elders aren't meant to be simple administrators or even policy makers, but they're meant to be truly shepherds. John and David are called to be shepherds, to shepherd us, to pay careful attention to us. It's got a lot of hard work, haven't they? Bless them. <laughs> but, I mean, shepherds in those days, is a slightly different picture. We have to understand that shepherding today is a little bit different. Shepherding in those days, the shepherds lived with their sheep out in the countryside. They gathered together, lived with their sheep, they cared for them, they tended to them, they tended to the wounded, they went out looking for the lost sheep. Ours are all rounded up in, in fields and they jump on their tractor and round them up with a dog, don't they? But they actually lived with them in the countryside. They were in amongst them. They protected the flock as well. They ensured their safety. They always went before the flock and ensured where they were leading the flock to was safe. There were no wolves, no poisonous plants they could eat, no snakes. They led them to green pastures, as David talks about in the Psalms, doesn't he? It's exactly the same sort of thing. And again, Paul, in that same Acts chapter 20, when he's talking to those Ephesians elders, Ephesian elders, he talks about, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in amongst you. The responsibility of our elders is to keep an eye out for people who turn up with hidden agendas. Sometimes the devil plants people in amongst us. More often than not, sometimes it's just man's schemes to pull the church down. We have to be, it's, it's rare, thankfully, we haven't seen that very much. But it can happen. And for us, it's easy for us to become complacent and not spot it before it becomes a problem. 
thankfully we have men in place to keep an eye out for these things, to, keep, to pay careful attention to the flock and to make sure we're being led into safe ground at all times. One more thing just on the theme of the picture of shepherd itself that's worth noting. They often work together in groups. They got their flocks together and they work together in groups with their combined flocks. A plurality in leadership is biblical. It's elsewhere, I'm not going to go into it now, but we practice plurality of elders. We don't practice the one single pastor who does all the hard work. We practice a plurality of elders. We've got John and David. Other New Frontiers churches practice the same principle as much as they're able to. But it's a case of they keep each other accountable. It keeps, we, we, it keeps them accountable to us, knowing that it's not going to be one person with a hidden agenda who goes off and does something and, and abuses their position as elder. We know there's other people to keep, keep an eye on them as well. They keep an eye on each other. It's also for mutual support and mutual gifts. Not one man is gifted in everything that is required to lead a church. But between a body of men, you get a compatibility of gifts, don't you? Plurality of leadership. It's biblical. I'm not going to get much time to actually focus on eldership too much in detail this morning, so there are other things to look at. I'm just going to give you three bullet points as oversight, as well as the fact that it's all about character. Men in eldership, in leadership in general, it's about character before gifting. But there's three more things I just want to briefly touch on. First of all, it is a calling. Again, in Acts chapter 20, Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. He then continues in verse 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They weren't just put in that position by the church, found someone with the right qualifications, you're good at managing, you're good at administration, we'll give you the job. The Holy Spirit made it quite clear who the men to lead them were. The Holy Spirit put them in that place. It is quite clearly a calling. It's not simply for those who aspire to it. It's not simply for those who are gifted. You could, have, you could have a tremendous gifting in leadership, but your character, if it's not in the right place, it's going to cause big problems, isn't it? If men, if men fulfil the role of eldership for any primary reason, there are other reasons, of course. You need to have the, the giftings and the etc. in place, the character. But if they do it for any reason other than it's not a calling, it's going to cause problems down the line. We need to know these are the men that God has given us to lead us, for our protection and for theirs as well. That's the first one, it's a calling. Secondly, our elders, our leaders need to be learning and growing. If our leaders aren't moving forward themselves, the flock isn't going to move forward with our leaders. It applies elsewhere in the church, in small groups and so on, but if the leader stagnates, so does the church, by default. We need people who are out front with the vision of God, careful, prayerful vision of God, understanding where God wants us to go, knowing the right, biblical, safe way to do so and to lead us into that. We need these men to do that. And if they're unable to do that, we're not going to be moving forward anywhere. There's a saying that leaders are readers. And it's true. It's not about how many books a leader reads. It's a question of are they studying, are they growing, are they feeding themselves, are they being fed? Because if they're not growing, we won't grow. We'll stagnate. And that's not what God has in plans, in plans for his church. That's the second one, learning and growing. But thirdly, it's about relationship. Eldership, elders need to be among us and over us. They are in authority, but they're not aloof. They need to be among us and over us. Jesus fulfilled that. Luke chapter 22, verse 27 says, I'm among you as one who serves. He was quite clearly our king. He's quite clearly the chief shepherd. And yet he was among us and he served us. A perfect example 
for our leaders, let alone the rest of us. This is why Peter says it's not about lording it, it's about caring for the flock. Two very different things. It's getting the balance to have the confidence to lead. Our, our leaders, if they're inconfident, unconfident, whatever the word is, they, they, that's, going to, that's going to come across. If they don't have the confidence to lead us, that's going to make a big difference to having the full frightness to say, God is leading us here and we are going. Come with us. They need to have the confidence to lead. If they don't do that out of false humility, false modesty, like we were hearing last week, then that breaks things down as well. They need to have the confidence to know God has called me to this role and I'm going to lead in authority. But to do it with humility. That theme, humility, keeps running all the way through this letter. They need to do it with humility as well. Pray for them. I'll say it every time I preach, I think, but pray for our leaders. Don't forget. So that's the leaders. That's the shepherds. But what about the flock? We don't get off scot-free. <laughs> we can't gloat and leave it all to them. The same principles, they apply whatever role we have in church or in life in general. Let's look at verses 5 and 6, first of all. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. <clears throat> humility, there it is again. Humility is a recognition of our position and our perspective. It says here, under the mighty hand of God, under God's mighty hand. When we recognise that, when we recognise that God is good, that he is mighty, that he is infinitely wise, we are under him and he cares for us. That's true humility. Humility is not demeaning yourself. Humility is not putting yourself down. Again, that becomes false modesty. It's been said before that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Two very different things. Humility is the willing submission to trust the sovereign king of all things, to seek his will before yours in all things, to seek his heart in all circumstances, to seek his character in my character, and to seek his praise and glory at all times, not mine. That's humility. That's not putting myself down. That's not false modesty. That's not saying I'm rubbish. Because he thinks differently to that. It's also recognising who I am in light of him. But then verse 6 then leads into verse 7. The natural repercussions of humility, meaning to trust him, leads into verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Hallelujah. He cares for you. It's in here. Sometimes we're never quite sure. He does. He really does care for you. See, Peter, is Peter saying this? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter could say that. Peter knew what it was like. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Jesus helped him catch fish when he couldn't. Jesus helped him walk on the water. <coughs> Jesus even delivered him from prison by sending an angel. Peter himself says in Acts chapter 12, the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me. Peter knew what it was like to cast his anxieties on Jesus because he cared for him. He put it into practice. There's no wonder Peter could write that verse, verse 7. Casting our anxieties on him isn't a frivolous act. It is a true act of true humility, recognising who we are and who he is, letting him be in control. 
Come on, wifey. No, we haven't practiced it. Proves the point. It's more scary, but it proves the point. How much does she trust me? What do you reckon? Do you think she does? How long have we been married? Can you remember? No, she can't. <laughs> Nearly 16 years. Do you trust me? Is that all? Oldies? It's about trust, isn't it? She falls back, not even looking at me. She's falling backwards. She can't see that I am right behind her at all times. You can't see. You're looking that way, aren't you, darling? Blinkered. Go for it. Well done, <laughs> I nearly chickened out of doing that. Glad I didn't. Glad I caught her. <laughs> She's got back problems to start with, isn't she? <laughs> oh, thank you, my love, for trusting me. That is what it's about. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your burdens to the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will take care of you. We have, we have real problems letting it go. We think we've cast our burdens to him, and then we carry on worrying. What's that all about? But we do. We do. Casting our burdens to him, our anxieties on him, is not a frivolous act. It's not about not caring or not thinking. Just go, oh yeah, whatever, I'll let him worry about it. We can still be deliberate and conscious in this. It is a conscious, clear, brains in gear act that, no, God is good all the time. He cares for me. He's bigger than everything. These problems I can't deal with on my own. I'm going to let him deal with them and I'm not going to worry because he cares for me. It's a conscious brains in gear act. This is why Peter then continues in verse 8. Cast your anxiety in him because he cares for you. That conscious decision. But then he also says, verse 8, be self-controlled and alert or be sober-minded in other versions. It's about being rational. It's about being sensible. Understanding, it's about being deliberate. Why does he say that here? Why is he saying that here? Because it continues in verse 8, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil is real. I'm not going to spend too much time on him. He doesn't deserve it. We need to talk about him sometimes because you get complacent. The devil is real. Isaiah 14 explains the story and elsewhere in Revelation. There was an angel who allowed pride to get in the way and he fell from grace. And he's been maniacally scheming ever since to bring God's people down, taking with him, mankind in general. Remember this, the devil is a far greater theologian than any of us in this room. He's been around a lot longer than we have. He's been around since before all this was put into written form. He knows this book inside out. So don't play games with him. Believe that he knows how to play games with you. Don't look for the devil in everything. Don't do that. In fact, we don't have the authority to do that. We just need to trust God. Let him deal with it. So casting anxieties on him again. One more point. The devil is not a mind reader. He cannot read your thoughts. Only God can do that. Remember that, because it's easy to forget. Some people don't know that. If you don't know that, you do now. He can't read your mind. Only God can do that. He can put thoughts in your head. He can whisper lies to you. And he knows what lies you will listen to. Remember, he's a far greater schemer that we can give you credit for. But he can't read your mind. 
Cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. He will lift you up. Be sober-minded, therefore. Be self-controlled and alert, like Peter says, because he's on the prowl. We can't ignore the fact that he's out there. Therefore, we need to understand where we are weak, the people we are weakest with, the places we are weakest, the times we are weakest. It's about making a conscious effort to be alert to what he's up to, but more importantly, to be putting God first in all things rather than being complacent. And we can do that by verse 9. It says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's that sober-mindedness again. It's that self-controlled. Resist him. It's a deliberate act. Standing firm in your faith. It's a key element. I'd love to spend time on vast chunks of Hebrews and, and elsewhere talking about standing firm in your faith. But ultimately, it's about reminding yourself of who do you really trust? Really. Who do you really trust? Because your actions and the way you live your life tells the tale. Bit of a challenge for me sometimes. Who do you really trust? Take a look at your life and that will tell you who you really trust. Sometimes I don't always trust him. A lot of the times I try and do it on my own. Do I really trust Do I really trust him? I know in my head who he is. I know how great he is. I know how wonderful he is. I know how much he cares for me. And I'm still over here, worrying on my own, trying to get things done. Do I really trust him? But Peter also encourages us to do so, knowing that we're not alone. He says, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Yes, he's speaking of suffering, and throughout this letter we've been hearing about suffering in a significant way, but remember, in this context of this passage here, in chapter 5, Peter's coming straight off the back of the devil's prowling around. Don't look for the devil in terms of illness and so, so forth. Don't look for the devil in everything, like I've already said. Yes, sometimes he is behind pain and so on, and sickness. More often than not, it's just one of those things, but he's using it to his advantage. Because of the world we live in. The world we live in is full of sickness and death. Don't look for the devil behind everything. Some people do, and it's wrong. We have no authority to do so. But the suffering here that Peter is talking about is just in general, off the back of the fact that the devil is around. Just be very aware, be very deliberate. Don't attempt conversation with the devil. Don't go looking for him, don't play games with him. Just simply resist him. That's all we need to do. Remember that. James chapter 4, verse 7. James repeats it again. He says himself, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Simple as that. Don't enter into conversation with him either. Just simply resist. Dig your feet into Christ. Dig your feet into his truth. Know the truth so you can do that. Spend time in the word. When you know that truth, the devil will flee. Don't play games, don't engage in conversation, just resist him and get on with it. But then, even more encouragement, verse 10, Peter then says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. That is by default irrevocable. That is a guaranteed encouragement. Be encouraged. So there you go, that's albeit brief, that's what Peter is saying to the elders, to our leaders, and what he's saying to us as the flock, to the church. And thus far, throughout this letter, he has helped us understand true humility in the light of our identity in Christ, chapters 1 and 2, in the workplace, in chapter 2, 
in our marriages and in our general relationships, in our home life in chapter 3, in our social lives as we were here last week in chapter 4, and now in our church life as well. Peter's reminding us again of the core truth that generates true humility. It's not a question of altering our outward behaviour in order to change what's on the inside. It doesn't work that way around. What's inside affects our outward behaviour. If you're scribbling notes, go back, make a note to go back and have a look at verse 2 of the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 2. You look at the order that is listed there. The order of the process is about a change on the inside that then brings obedience. It's not obedience brings change on the inside. It's the other way around. It starts on what's going on the inside. And this passage here, chapter 5, has a very fundamental line. It's mentioned almost in passing, really. But it summarises everything that Peter has expressed in this letter. It underpins this chapter. It hinges on it. It underpins this whole letter. It also underpins this whole book in my hands. It's just a simple simple sentence, simple quote. Most of us know it well. And Peter quotes it in verse 5, the end of verse 5. It's from Proverbs 3, verse 34. He's quoting it from what's known as the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you can imagine, you've got the original Old Testament scriptures that the Jews read and cherish. It's been translated into our modern day, straight from that, translated into our modern day text we've got here. But also, in the meantime, about 200-300 BC, it was also translated into Greek for the people of the day. And it's that translation that Peter and James does also quote this verse from. So if you look back to Proverbs 3.34, you see it's it's worded slightly differently to how Peter quotes it here. It's the same verse from this same original text, just using slightly different words. But he says here, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Throws it in passing. There's a vital, vital truth in this. Underpins everything. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How can we learn humility? Really, how can we learn humility? It's about perspective. Start with this. None of us deserves to live. None of us deserves another breath. I'm sure we're very aware, all of us, that life can just be gone just like that. Friday morning, not so far away, I won't say where. A couple in their 60s, woke up, normal day. He was still working another year before he was going to retire. Suddenly drops down dead about breakfast time. Just like that. Wife in a panic, phones the ambulance. When the ambulance crew turns up, they find her dead as well. Yeah, very sad. That's what happens. You wake up on a normal day, you just don't know, do you? I'm not trying to be morbid here, I'm just trying to wake us up to reality. (coughs) There's a a great book called The A12 to Heaven. I don't know if you've read it. There's a guy, Phil Stoddart, I think his name is, from New Frontiers Church up in East Anglia. And uh, two of his teenage daughters have been to a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert with some friends, driving home, hit a drink driver, dead. The book is amazing. Read it. Because it's his diaries and their diaries. They were both saved. They're both with the Lord now. But you just never know. Just happened, just like that, can't it? Age bears no relevance. And yet we can still bury that thought and continue. Ecclesiastes 12 talks about that silver cord that can just be snapped. Why did you wake up this morning? 
Why did you wake up this morning? Was it because of the light coming through the window? Or the bird song? Or the rain? Yeah? Or the alarm going off? Ultimately, it boils down to this. You woke up this morning because God let you wake up this morning. God sustained you through the night. Psalm 3 verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. You woke up because God let you wake up. It's quite a glorious truth, but it's quite sobering as well, isn't it? But then why do we deserve to die? Why is that? That's the truth, but why? Why do we deserve to die? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he does start with that, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are something we have earned. Wages are something we deserve. I do a month's work for my employer. I have earned that pay packet at the end of the month. Through our sin, we earn death. But why is that? Why is that? It all boils down to pride, which then comes back to this proverb we're quoting here. Pride is placing ourselves before anyone else or anything else. Pride is the opposite of submission. We've been talking about submission over the past few weeks, haven't we? Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride is wanting to be in control. Pride thinks we know better, thinks I know better. Unfortunately, pride got us into this mess in the first place. God hates the sin of pride. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. And I see arrogance in me sometimes. That's an abomination to the Lord. So it would be heavy, but we need to hear this first before we move on. Pride is the reason for Adam and Eve defying God. They put their desires, their thoughts, thinking they knew better before what God had expressly commanded them not to do, they did it. Pride. They thought they knew better, they defied him, and it ripped apart that perfect communion they had with him. Imperfection invaded perfection. It was ripped apart and fouled it in every way. Pride destroys. Sin entered the world, corrupted the world they live in, and we still live in. And this world has been decaying ever since. Why does God oppose the proud? It's because he is so perfect. He is the ultimate imperfection. Anything short of perfect, therefore, is intolerable to him. Because being perfect, he sets his heart only on what is perfect. If he didn't set his heart on anything less than perfect, if he set his heart on anything less than perfect, he wouldn't be perfect. Does that make sense? So in doing so, he sets his heart on himself. He's the only person who can never be accused of being selfish. He's allowed to set his heart on himself because he is setting his heart on what is perfect. Which is why he demands that everything brings him glory. That's why everything we need to do brings him glory. Not just because he's bigger than us, but because he set his heart on bringing himself glory. You look at the, the re- relationship between the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they're all intent on bringing the Father the glory that he deserves. They've got their heart set on it, set on perfection. And that's what we are called to do as well, but we are unable to. And so our corrupt hearts settle on something less than that. 
which is why it says in Romans that all fall short of the glory of God because we, our hearts fall short of aiming for that at all times. We can't always aim for that because we're sinful. It is impossible for us to please God on our own. Nothing we do can win him over because we are imperfect. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that our righteous deeds, our acts, are like a filthy cloth, a dirty rag, a corrupted garment. It actually means a dirty sanitary towel. That's how disgusting it is. Us trying to convince God we're great or to convince God to let us off the hook, our righteous deeds and doing to do good things are just like giving him a bucket full of sanitary towels and going, ER, it's just, oh, heinous, it's offensive to him. Can't stand it. Because it's imperfect. Because he is so perfect. The ultimate difference between the perfect God and imperfect us results in that ultimate distance which then results in the ultimate offence which actually results in the ultimate consequence. We deserve death because of not just what we do but who we are. Some members of the liberal church decry that it's anything to do with who we are and we are all capable of living the perfect life, we just choose not to. It's not just about what we do that makes us sinful. We are sinful by birth. It's called original sin and it is true and it is biblical. And so here, Peter quoting from Proverbs is not just giving us a helpful soundbite to bear in mind as we go about our daily lives. Be humble, just put other people first and go and make their tea for them. And it's more than that. This is the gospel right here. God opposes the proud, but, glorious but, he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the ones who recognise who he is, who recognise who they are, and trust him for salvation. And that's when grace comes. There's the gospel right there in that little proverb. Sticking with the sheep analogy, Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. My pride blames anyone but me. My pride passes a buck. My pride thinks I know better. But that brings, as we've just seen, judgment and consequences from the perfect God. But humility accepts the truth about ourselves, even when it hurts. Sometimes it does, when we see what we're really like. And humility leads us to God's news, his good news for us. The good news is that Isaiah 53, verse 6, continues, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The glory of the gospel is that the chief shepherd, as Peter quotes him here, the chief shepherd became the sacrificial lamb. Because death is required to deal with that sin, therefore that's what we all deserve to do. We all deserve to die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no remission, acquittal, amnesty for sins without the shedding of blood. We all deserve that because of our sin. And Jesus said, you know what? I shed mine. I am the chief shepherd. I'm going to be that perfect sacrificial lamb that sheds its blood so you don't have to. Now do we get humility? (coughs) He practised humility in doing that. That we might practise humility to receive it. Grace to the humble. Jesus dealt on his cross. He dealt with our sin. If you trust in him, as Romans 10.9 says, 
If you confess your mouth that he is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. That's all we have to do. He dealt with our sin on the cross. If you accept that, your sins are dealt with. If you, in true humility, seek true forgiveness, acceptance of who you are, if you repent of what you've done, and say, Jesus, I want to put you first now, because you've died for me, you rose again for me. There's humility, straight away there. This is why Peter, at the very, very last line of this chapter, he can now say to a people who are dispersed, who are suffering, facing persecution, who are going to face even more horrendous persecution not long after as well, he can say to them, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amazing. He didn't know better. You think it was a bit audacious to say that. But there is a reason why he can say that. He says it at the beginning of the letter as well. See, true humility recognises we are under the mighty hand of an infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely perfect and good God. True humility recognises that we can never claim amnesty for our sins, for our selfish desires, for our pride. We can only do that through Christ. He's the only one who paved the way that allows that. We can be right with God again, but only through Christ, not through anything that we can or can't do. True humility recognises we cannot save ourselves. True humility receives his grace, grace to the humble. He gives us the free, undeserved gift of freedom and amnesty, washing away of sins, our punishment paid for by Jesus Christ, his Son. Therefore, you can know his peace. Whatever you're facing in this life and beyond, you can cast your burdens to him and know his peace because you're saved by him. Because he opposes the, cra- the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think it's right we're just finishing some prayer, I think. All of us can respond to this in some ways, whatever's individual to each of us. But I've, I've sent out some questions for Paul to put online for Cell Group in the week. There's a lot more we can delve a lot deeper into this. Do we really cast our anxieties on him? <coughs> Do we really trust him? Ultimately, do we really trust him for our salvation? Or do we think we can get ourselves into heaven? Because we can't. It's only through Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is through true humility and trusting him and putting him first. I'm going to close your eyes. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Lord, we just want to thank you that despite who we are and despite what we do, you still love us. You love us so much that you allowed your son to willingly die on that cross that we didn't have to. We deserve to die, but we can gain eternal life through you. If you don't know him this morning, he's your personal saviour, then don't waste any time. Just right now, in your heart, just say to him, Jesus, I believe you are real, I believe you are the Son of God, and I believe that you died in my place. And I believe that you rose again for me, I can be raised to eternal life and never never have to die other than just in this earthly body. I can live with you forever. I believe that you died on the cross 
all my sins can be washed away and I can start again a brand new life in you, a new beginning, putting you first. True humility is about saying sorry for the things we've done. True humility is about turning away from them because we're trusting him to know best. And if you've been having trouble with worries in your life, anxieties that you just can't let go of, believe this truth that you can let go of them. You can lay them down at his feet and leave them behind you. Lord, for anybody here who's struggling with that, who has been struggling, may this week be a brand new week of a brand new start of living a life of freedom. The, the, the abundant life that you promise, that we read about and we don't always see for ourselves. Lord, the truth is that you care for us. Jesus. Cast your burdens to the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your life to the Lord and he will sustain you too. (coughs) Lord, we love you and we thank you. We glorify you because that's what you deserve. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Anybody here wants prayer with anything, please, please, please come and find me. John, David, come and speak to us. Don't leave here without having dealt with it. Or at least started to. Come and find us. Thank you, guys. Refreshments out the back. Stay and linger. Like I say, questions will be online tonight or tomorrow.